Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's John. Just a few things before we get started. First, the intro might sound a little bit different, and it's because Chris's equipment literally blew up the other day. And second, make sure you listen to the intro so you can learn about our upcoming special webinar on resilience. And lastly, this episode was recorded just about 10 days ago, and so much has changed in what feels like 100 years since then. All right. Hope you enjoy. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, and really quickly before we get into it, we have a few really cool offerings coming up, and I want to make sure you're aware of them, and the easiest way for us to do that is to send out an email. So of course we have our social platforms, which we'll send it out on Twitter, Facebook primarily. But email is a great way to keep in touch when something comes up in between podcasts. So for example, next week, a former guest of ours, Doug Hench, has offered to host a free webinar where he's really going to tell us about remaining resilient during this difficult time. As you know, Doug is a previous guest, one of the most downloaded episodes a brilliant guy and an expert on resilience. So we thought, what a great time to allow people who listen to this show to not only come and learn a little something from Doug, but to also ask questions, 
get some tips and insight on resilience in this difficult time. Additionally, a few times a week for the foreseeable future, we're going to be sending out short three to 10 minute videos from past guests that are discussing their expertise and how it applies during this time. So for example, we have a strength and conditioning coach about how to work out from home. We have a venture capitalist and entrepreneur who will be talking about keeping your side hustle going during this time. We're working on having Dr. B, our gut doctor, come back on and talk about gut health and why that's important uh, with sickness everywhere. So it's really cool. We just thought, you know, a lot of us are locked up, cooped up in our houses, and this would be a great way to bring more content, more insight, more expertise in a time when we all need it, when the truth is important. And if we can help anyone out, whether it be provide something to do for five minutes as a break or learn something new, this is a great way. But again, you only have those details or that access if you have signed up for the newsletter or our social platform. So head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. And be on the lookout for the invite to the webinar with Doug and, of course, the videos with our guests. So that said, let's get on to our episode this week where we interview Dexter Roberts. Dexter is a writer, speaker, and analyst on China economics, business, and politics. Previously, he served as reporter and China bureau chief for Bloomberg Businessweek and was based in Beijing for more than two decades. As a journalist, he's won multiple awards, including Overseas Press Club Awards, the Sidney Hillman Foundation Prize, and more. He has his undergrad from Stanford and his master's degree from Columbia. So a very smart guy. And in this episode, what we're really talking about with Dexter is his knowledge of China and then how the coronavirus, globalization, and the Chinese economy are all intertwined and how they're all impacting each other. It's a unique time we're in, I think, with something like the coronavirus, which is really proving that we're all reliant on each other and we're also all interlinked is a really interesting lens to view it through. And then also when we talk about the economic impacts of something like the coronavirus, it started in China and China being really the production hub of the world, what those downstream effects were. Dexter has a brand new book. It's called The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, the Factory, and the Future of the World. So we're going to turn it over to Dexter. Don't forget, sign up for our newsletter so we can keep in touch, let you know about all these great things we have coming out. You can do that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Scroll down to the bottom and sign up there. And also you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. If these episodes or our videos keep you sane during this crazy time, consider supporting us with two bucks or five bucks a month and also get some great perks such as ad-free episodes. All right, here it is, Dexter Roberts, as we discuss many things, including his new book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. Enjoy. You wrote this book, and it's very timely. Um, when you were writing it, obviously, you didn't know what was going to be going on with coronavirus and that China was going to be at the core of it all. 
Um, but there's a lot of things that you discuss that are relevant. So the book is The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and the Future of the World. And for those that don't know, tell us how and why China is at the core of what you wrote about. I mean, give us a little bit about your background. Well, I was, I, I just returned, well, about a year and a half ago from 20, 23 years, actually, as a foreign correspondent in, in China. And, uh, so, and I was doing, I, I, my interest in China goes back even earlier. I studied the language in college. So it's a long, long interest, long time interest for me. And, uh, one of the areas I've been most interested in, in as a journalist in China is, for lack of a better expression, the other China uh, of migrant workers and rural people in the countryside that are their relatives. And, you know, why are those people important? Uh, well, first of all, they are vast in number. If you put those two groups together, we're talking about, you know, close to half of China's population, maybe 500 million people, which of course is significantly larger than the whole population here in the United States. Right. You know, China being really at the hub of what's going on, China being uh, for a while, I believe the, the fastest growing economy by a long shot, and also now seeing how global everything is. I mean, I think we all know this, but when something like the coronavirus hits, and it just immediately has global ramifications. What I'm really interested in is how we can have countries with very different beliefs and how those beliefs have such a direct impact on everyone else. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting question. The, uh, you know, when, back on me for a second, when I arrived, you know, China was, uh, somewhere at the bottom of the top 10 economies in the world in terms of GDP, um, you know, forward to 2001 and they entered the World Trade Organization, uh, there was a massive increase in money and investment and expertise uh, into China. And that's really where this uh, new model of economic model that's been driving China came, came from. And that's the factory to the world. Um, and now, of course, China is the second largest economy in the world. Uh, it supplies many of the goods that you and I use on a daily basis, whether it's you know, our iPhone or the or the clothes that we wear. So uh, now, yeah, the glo globalization. I mean, China is the classic globalization story, and our relationship with the United States in the United States is 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 uh, is, is obviously you know the, the other side of that. So we we our 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 brands are producing there, and and we are buying the goods from there. So we are integrally connected. For those of us unfamiliar, how did they really position themselves as that, the global producer? Well, um, as I said, uh, the, 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 first of all, there was all the investment and, and attention, the, the decision by companies to source their goods from there. And that was really, there's a twofold part, there's two, two parts to it really. One was export platform. And that very much, was based on a whole number of things, but the key issue, the key, the key driver there was very low wages of manufacturing workers. So one side it was a, as an export platform, but China also always has been a draw for the multinationals of the world because of its potential market and now its market. Uh, you know, the world's most populous country and a country that has seen, particularly in the cities, very rapid. Uh, 
growth in incomes in, in, in recent years. What does the average income look like in China, both the rural aspect and in the city in comparison to perhaps what we might be used to here in America? Well, it's still far, far lower. Uh, they, if you look at GDP per capita, which is not a great measure because that doesn't deal with the, uh, the, great, uh, the great differences in income within the country. But if you look just at that raw number, China set a target uh, a while back to reach uh, $10,000 US dollars uh, GDP per capita by next year. And they chose next year because that will be the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, which was so 19, uh, 1921 was when it was founded. Next year, 2021, they've set this goal. And it, they'll probably reach that. Uh, the coronavirus makes it uh, a, a little more challenging. But if they don't meet it immediately next year, they're going to meet it very shortly afterwards. But the point that I make in my book uh, is that that number, it, it means something, but more important is looking at the, at the, at the differences in income. And the most, uh, the sort of the, the clearest way to look at it really is rural as compared to urban incomes. And that's very easy to do in China because China has a long time policy of separating its people by uh, basically where they are born through, uh, through a policy called the household registration system. And they split, they split them into rural people and into urban people. And by the way, those rural people might actually be working in factories in the cities, but they're still classified as rural because that's where they're from. If you look at that number, um, I mean, first of all, uh, I should when I arrived in China, which was in 1995, the gap between the rural and the urban incomes was roughly one to three. So earning three times as much in the cities. What's, what's pretty amazing is although both rural and urban incomes have gone up dramatically, that gap is still about the same. So your average person with a, from the rural countryside is actually making only a third of those people in the cities. And then if you, if you look at other measures, uh, what you find is dramatic income inequality, actually on par with, uh, on par with kleptocratic Russia. Actually, Thomas Piketty, along with a scholar at Berkeley named Gabriel Zuckman, who'd done a lot of uh, work on and research on income inequality in China. And number one, it's very high. And number two, it's growing very, very rapidly. Again, basically on par with Russia, and now one of the most unequal societies in the world. Right. And that was my assumption from the outside. I just, I didn't know. The reason I wanted to get a sense of that, the inequality, you know, what's driving China's growth is because I want to bring it back to the coronavirus. I think people all across the world are not only feeling the health impacts, which are obviously the most important, but the economic impacts and how much of it starts with China being this production hub. I know that Trump was trying to figure out, well, where else can we start sourcing goods from? And we're going to need to diversify now. You were in China when, you know, SARS was a thing, when bird flu was a thing. Um, obviously, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like there is something about China that is a hotbed for these kind of epidemics and where they begin. Do you know why that might be, if that's true, having lived there for so long? Well, first, I should clarify that I'm, you know, I'm not a, a healthcare professional and I don't have 
I don't have real knowledge about this, but what I understand sure. is, uh, yeah, indeed, a lot of these, uh, these some of these um, viruses that China's dealt with and now the and and that have gone global have originated in China. I mean, probably uh, one of the most important reasons is density of population. So um, you you have a you know it's the world's largest population, so you have a lot of people living very close to each other. One issue has been um, wet markets where uh, a lot of different animals sometimes uh, live are, are sold. And uh, uh, we saw that certainly with SARS in 2003. It originated, I believe, in a market, in uh, a wet market in, uh, in Guangdong province. And again, there's been some... Uh, there's been some disputes about exactly, and there's, I don't think people are absolutely sure where this latest coronavirus originated from, but one likely culprit is a wet market in the city of Wuhan that suddenly we've all heard of. Right. <laughs> so I think it's, I think it is as simple as that. Um, there was, there's been a trade in wildlife and exotic animals, which to their credit, the Chinese government is now cracking down on. That has mm. been a problem as well. You know, having been there, it feels that it's problematic that these things are originating there and their government is set up in such a way that it wants to shield what's going on from the outside world. So a lot of that secrecy, uh, denial, not being able to trust those numbers. And given that you talk a lot about, you know, the the government system, the economic system there, what is it that's driving that secrecy? And, and tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, basically in this case in coronavirus, what happened and why? Well, the secrecy is really ingrained in the, the leadership, which is the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, there's no, of course, no opposition party to speak of. Um, and so they're the ones who uh, get credit when, when things go well, and they're the ones that right and rightly so that get blamed when things go wrong. You can't point fingers at another party and say they're responsible. So going back, you know, literally decades, the the Communist Party in China has had a culture of secrecy. Uh, uh, free press does not go with, you know, one party rule. Uh, so their inclination often is uh, to control rather than to allow the information to spread and let people make their own decisions on how to react to it. We saw that in the this latest example where, as, as you know, there was a cover-up initially, which was a disaster for China and for the world. I, you know, so we had, a you know, a, as you know, I think a doctor came forward as a whistleblower and spoke to some of his colleagues about a mysterious seemingly highly contagious pneumonia that was spreading. And he did this at the end of uh, the end of last year. Well, he was immediately you know, muzzled and, and ordered to sign something saying he had he had he had, uh, you know, maliciously spread gossip or spread rumors that were dangerous to social stability. So uh, we had that we had that initial cover up, which lasted for several weeks, uh, which was which was, you know, devastating. I, uh, many more people became ill. Uh, many people died, frankly, because of that initial cover-up. And uh, um, there's research out now that suggests that if China had moved as quickly and 
and, and draconianly and, and actually effectively, as it eventually did three weeks earlier, there would have been 95% fewer infections. One week earlier, there would have been 60%. Wow. Would it be fair to view China as an existential threat going forward, given their propensity to secrecy, uh, the things that you mentioned, things like overpopulation, low wages, communist rule, all of this seems to be in a global environment. What this coronavirus has really brought out is like, it's the borders are almost fake, right? It, it doesn't really matter. You can't necessarily protect yourself in a global world. So do we have to start viewing this type of environment, um, both, you know, from an economic and personal perspective, as well as this type of government as a threat to global society? Well, I mean, first of all, all I always critical distinction between the party and the leadership and the people of China who have had a long, you know, love, some love, sometimes hate relationship with uh, the United States in particular, uh, but often a very affectionate relationship with the U.S. That's why we've had so many um, young people from China seek to come to our universities here. And that's a very good thing. Um, so important to make that distinction. Uh, the other big point is just that, you know, whether or not we view them as a threat, uh, you know, we, I, we don't really have the luxury of actually treating them as a threat. Uh, we, our economies are too entwined. Our top companies, our top brands from Apple to GM to Intel are deeply, deeply dependent for both manufacturing and for sales on the China market. So this, this, this is a reality we're dealing with. We need to deal with the Chinese government with these core issues that are confronting the world. I mean, namely climate change is a, is a huge one. Uh, you know, weapons proliferation, including in the Middle East, North Korea, all these things we can't solve without working with China. So that's, that, that is a fact. Having said that, uh, do I think that we have, uh, particularly on the economic side, do I think that we have uh, sort of overexposed ourselves in our, in our reliance on China in our global supply chain? Well, yes, I think so. Um, I think that is there a need to diversify uh, our global supply chain and not be so reliant on China, not just for medical goods like masks or antibiotics, which we are, by the way, very dependent on China for and, and raw materials for drugs, but, but also just in general. Um, one thing I would also just note about this, the coronavirus, the situation today brings a real urgency to this. We're all really focused on this, but this is not new. We had a, we had a two year trade war, which, by the way, is not over. Um, it'll it will resurface when the virus goes away. We have the same disputes with China that we always have. Um, and before that, even earlier, uh, China was becoming increasingly uncompetitive simply because of rising manufacturing wages. It's, you know, you can get cheaper workers now, not just in Southeast Asia, but you can get them cheaper in Mexico than you can in China. And now for a quick break for a few words from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Indeed.com. When you start your hiring process, you may have questions. Will you find good applicants to choose from? What about education and experience? And how will you know you've made the right hire? Indeed is here to help. 
Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes and use screener questions to help create your short list of applicants fast. Also, add skills tests to your job posts so you can be confident in your applicants' abilities. Their library of more than 50 skills tests range from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today at indeed.com SPP and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. That's indeed.com SPP. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. And now back to the episode. If, if that's the case, and Mexico is so much closer, why don't we make a heavy transition there? Is it just given that we've already set up all of the infrastructure to do trade so easily with China? Or is it a trust factor? Well, I think we're going to, I think Mexico, without question, uh, is, has already begun to and will benefit even more as, uh, as we diversify our global supply chain. Its proximity to the United States, obviously, and the U.S. market is a crucial positive factor for, for, for putting production there. Uh, but beyond that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, we need to be close to we, uh, the companies that uh, speaking for American companies, we need to be close to uh, our markets. And China still is a huge market, despite the fact I think it's not going to grow nearly as fast as people have expected and companies have expected in the past, which I deal with in my book. Uh, but you need to be near your markets. Um, India, you know, India's uh, companies like Foxconn, you know, Apple's number one contractor has actually started to try to set up iPhone production in India because it's a, it's a very large and fast growing market, much like China years ago. It's also a youthful market, which is, which is good for both manufacturing and potential sales going going forward. You covered it, but I want to go back to one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about, which is this idea of, of globalism and China being a threat. And I realized first the distinction you made between the people and the leadership is very critical. I mean, look, I, I don't agree with the leadership in my own country. And I realize how there's plenty of countries out there that could say, wait, the existential threat is your military industrial complex. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's your... So, so I, I definitely get that. However, I also do have a belief that our government has some checks and balances that might not be in place in a place like China. And I think that it's just going back to this idea, as you mentioned, our reliance, but the world's reliance on a government that believes in things like secrecy, inequality, uh, you know, et cetera. Um, and then, as you mentioned, even climate change, it just feels like it's time and the coronavirus is really presenting us with this opportunity to step back as a world and say, like, we, we can't be as divided as we are on basic issues because there is no more isolation. It's impossible. Like this proved it. I don't know. What am I missing there? Or what's what's the educated take on that? No, I mean, I agree. And I think that. uh use the cliche, you don't put all your bags, your eggs in one basket. Um, and certainly that's a, you know, we're seeing that with our global supply chain. Uh, one of the major criticisms, and I have many uh, with the Trump administration is the fact that even as they have taken a harder line, line on China, 
which I think uh, was overdue to some degree. I don't like the way they've gone about it, even in, with tariffs in the trade war and so on. I don't think that's been effective. But sort of reexamining the relationship, I think, is, is important at this point. But one of the biggest criticisms I have with the Trump administration is the fact that has gone in tandem with, in many cases, alienating all of our other, all of the other countries and all of our other partners. And I think um, as we sort of reevaluate our relationship with China, we need to make sure that we strengthen our relationship with countries, particularly those that might share more similar values, as you say, uh, might have a multi-party system or uh, respect free speech, uh, which are very, very important. So that's sort of my, I, again, I think uh, uh, a reevaluation of the relationship, certainly the economic relationship, but also the political relationship is a bit over, has been a bit overdue. Uh, but let's do this in a smart way. One of the things you mentioned that I we've never covered and I actually don't have a good understanding of is the trade war. So I wanted to ask a little bit about where does that currently stand? Obviously, the coronavirus you even mentioned kind of throws a little bit of a wrench in it. But could you explain from a basic perspective uh, what that was all about and how it was handled thus far? Yeah, well, so um, the so that there are these core issues between the two countries. And I mean, the, probably the three most important ones from the U.S. perspective has been uh, coercive tech transfer requirements. So in other words, if you want to do business in China, you want to set up manufacturing or you want to sell to the market, you need to, uh, particularly if you want, want to set up manufacturing, you need to have a joint venture partner and you need to share your technology. Hopefully they, they, they would like your core technology with them. And that's been uh, very damaging often for uh, for companies, uh, including American companies that have set up production there and have quickly discovered that there are Chinese competitors that have somehow come across their technology, perhaps it leaked through the joint venture partner, and now are competing directly with them. Another big one is uh, poor protection of intellectual property rights. And that's a very big one for the U.S., given the emphasis of our economy on, on, on intellectual property rights. And uh, the third one is really uh, direct and indirect subsidies that have been provided to many Chinese companies, particularly the state-owned ones, um, which have basically made for a, an unlevel playing field when, when competing with other countries around the world. So those are the three big issues. Those issues, by the way, were the issues that I first wrote about and kept writing about when I arrived in China in the mid-90s. So those issues have been there for a very long time. When I talk about uh, China, uh, the U.S. being somewhat being overdue for in, in, in sort of reevaluating the economic and business relationship, in part, I look back at, at how those issues I was writing about them in 1995. I kept writing about them. China entered the World Trade Organization and we told ourselves that those issues would be solved. And they certainly have not been. So that's why I really think we're overdue uh, for a reckoning and looking at the economic relationship. But the trade war, so the trade war starts, it's mainly pursued through tariffs, as you know, by the Trump administration and counter tariffs by China, which I think was ill-advised. Basically, we're putting taxes on our own populations. We then have to pay more for the goods that they buy uh, and continue to buy from overseas, from China, in the case of the United States and from, <clears throat> from the United States in the case of China. So. First of all, I don't think it was pursued in a very, very, uh, in a very uh, helpful way. And then, so fast forward to early this year, I guess it was, and we have the so-called phase one agreement, 
And the thing about the phase one agreement to keep in mind is it was just sort of a, a, a placemat, a doorstopper. It accomplished, to my mind, very little. What Trump wanted, what his administration wanted, was big promises of purchases. So he could go forward with his numbers and say, they will buy X amount of agricultural goods. They will buy this. They will buy that. The purchase agreements that China made were uh, unfeasible before the coronavirus. They mm. involved uh, they involved a very substantial hike in purchases that China had been doing uh, in previous years. So high that you know people that follow this very closely uh, were saying uh, this is not going to be possible. Well, the virus made it completely impossible. All along, the Trump administration has been telling us that they would deal with those core issues I just mentioned that are at the real heart of the disputes between the two countries in a phase two agreement. Now, I would be very surprised, very, very surprised if we see a phase two agreement before November when we might, you know, before we might get a new a new president. We'll see. So and I and I would be very surprised if we ever have a phase two agreement, which actually solves those issues between the two countries. That gets to the fact that uh, as much as we are unhappy with uh, these policies that discriminate against American companies, uh, we also have to keep in mind they're actually pretty important from the Chinese leadership's uh, perspective in their effort to build up globally competitive companies. I mean, when you think about it, let's look economically and you go back and you look at the stock market and you look at the last time uh, before the coronavirus, there was a big crash. It was caused by this trade war. And it was actually a pretty massive hit to the economy. When you look at the drop, I, I, I guess I wasn't as aware of how important that whole issue was to, again, to, to show our reliance on their manufacturing and them providing us with so many goods. Yeah, no, absolutely. You have to keep in mind that many of our sort of marquee brands, the, the, the companies that America is rightly famous for around the world, are deeply dependent on the China market and on production in China. And that includes Apple. It includes Walmart for sourcing. It includes GM, which now has a bigger auto market in China than in the United States. Uh, Intel, which is deeply, deeply reliant on selling chips to the China market. And the list goes on. Well, and that leads me to one of the things I really wanted to discuss with you was the economic impact of the coronavirus. Let's just start with where is China at this moment in their recovery, if you will, from the coronavirus? I know that they have significantly slowed it, um, but are people back to work? Are factories working? What does the timeline look like? From your perspective, uh, where do we stand at the moment? economically as it relates to the coronavirus and production in China? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, keep in mind that the coronavirus, what we saw in China was a dramatic hit to all parts of the economy. And I'm afraid it makes me afraid because there's good reason to believe that's what we'll see in places like here as well. So we're talking uh, manufacturing slammed, of course, services slammed, of course, no, no one could. No one going to restaurants or to ball games or to theaters or anything. Completely grinding to a halt. Uh, consumption hit really hard. People not buying. You know, they're not certainly on the service side. A, a, the whole service economy consumption ground to a halt. Uh, apart from things like online education and a couple, 
a couple hidden bright spots. Um, uh, internal trade stopped in China. I mean, transportation ground to a halt. External trade, as we know, ground, you know, ground to a halt. I was in a Verizon store in Missoula, Montana a few days ago and trying to get a new iPhone and their, their, their choices were severely limited because they told me for about four weeks, they just haven't been getting their phones in. Uh, be, and that's because manufacturing ground to a halt. So, so the very dramatic hit to all, really all parts of the economy what we're seeing now is uh, a slow return to something. It's not normalcy is not the right word, but a slightly more regular economy in the cities. And uh, those people that don't go into work every day, if they're white collar workers, they can work from home. Uh, and, you know, Starbucks is reopened. There's a lot of Starbucks. That's a fast growing market for Starbucks as well in China. Uh, so, the cities are, are starting to come back to life. Uh, what, what is not coming back to life is this other part of China, which I talk about in my book, which is the migrant workers that have been, by and large, the factory workers. Um, and when they have made it back to the factories, uh, first of all, they took, a huge, uh, they took a huge hit to their incomes because uh, they, they, uh, they were unable to actually make it back to their jobs. Uh, the, as you may you know the virus hit at an unusual time. It hit during the annual Lunar New Year. So they had already right. left their jobs. So first of all, they were unable to get back. And in some cases, they're still unable to get back. Uh, they, uh, there's always been a, uh, not a very charitable attitude by urbanites in China towards the migrants, uh, even though they are very reliant on them, not just for the goods they produce in the factories, but for the deliver the food delivery to their doors, to the dishwashers in the restaurants. They're very, very reliant on them. But so what's happened in, in some cases is uh, they have not been allowed to come back to their the apartments that they were renting in the cities. There's this fear that somehow they will bring back, they will have they will have the virus. Not a particular reason to think that would be the case, but that's that's how people are reacting. Uh, so so you have the situation where the cities are returning to a, a degree to normalcy, but a very significant portion of the Chinese population is still hurting. And, uh, and, and I have a real concern about that as we see China slowly start to recover. And what is the primary concern from their perspective? Again, you have more knowledge about their way of life, what it looks like than most people. So what is your kind of biggest concern at the moment on how the impact it's going to have on them? And then we'll talk about how it spreads. You have to keep in mind that the migrant workers in the factories uh, long before the virus started for a variety of reasons, including the fact that wages have gone up, have been less and less welcome in the cities as part of China's uh, very quite grand technology goals. They have a plan called Made in China 2025. A key part of that is developing their own robot, their own robotics industry and automating their factories. And they've actually put a lot of money behind that. You have subsidies at the, at the, at the central level and you have provincial level subsidies and, 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 and at the city level as well, which basically encourage factories to replace their workers with automation. And they literally call that policy in many cases, replacing workers with robots. And uh, so a, com a factory can get money to replace these workers. So the workers have become less and less welcome in the cities. They've always had a precarious existence because of this policy that, that dates back to Mao Zedong, actually, called the household registration policy, which effectively means 
they are guests in the cities. Their children cannot come with them. Their children cannot go to the public schools in the cities, and they cannot often, in many cases, get affordable health care in the cities. So this was already happening uh, with uh, uh, sort of the demographic changes in China, uh, higher manufacturing wages and uh, an aging workforce. Uh, the trade war intensified it as well as the export economy took a hit. And now um, I am worried that this uh, tendency to try to to sort of view them as outsiders and try to push them out of the cities is only going to intensify. Uh, this is a huge issue for China. And the leadership in general are relatively smart and they seem aware of this, but they are not taking steps to solve this. And that problem is big part of their economic path forward. And they've stated this very clearly is moving away from an export led model to having a much more domestic consumption driven economy. Mm. And the problem, the problem there quickly is that they've gotten a lot of the, the, a lot of the purchasing power in the cities has been used up. Brands like Apple, the iPhone and so on have seen, uh, they, they saw very rapid market share growth and it sort of stalled out as, as most people in the cities that could afford iPhones got them. The hope all along has been that that other China of migrants and rural people will get the spending power in order to start buying those iPhones as well. And that's, again, as I said, the economic model that the Chinese government is counting on as well. But they have these policies in place, that household registration policy, which makes that near impossible now. And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Ritual. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But even if we try really hard to eat kale salads and drink green smoothies, we're still most likely not getting all the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. No shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to your body than good. If you want to do what's best for your body, you're going to absolutely love Ritual. Ritual is traceable and transparent. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. And Ritual is delivered. A subscription is easy to start, and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. All right, listen up out there. Better health doesn't happen overnight, and right now, Ritual is offering Smart People podcast listeners 10% off during your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Head over to ritual.com slash smart. That's R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash smart to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. It reminds me of when, I don't even know the time frame, but when uh, Henry Ford, you know, was trying to ensure that his workers made enough money to be able to purchase the product that they were, they were making. Yes. And essentially that idea of raising wages, some absurd amount, I remember what he did, really is what uh, catapulted that company to the forefront because 
Now, it's just the economic model of if people can't afford what you're making, then it, you're going to be export driven, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in a more, for lack of a better word, sort of a more normal economy and society, though, as wages went up for those for, for those manufacturing workers and as they, they they would they would stay in the cities, they would they would use the, they, they would be making more wages more quickly, first of all, because the policy has artificially held back the growth of manufacturing wages. Uh, but they would be making more money and they would stay in the cities and they would seek jobs there. And, you know, someday they hopefully would you know buy their own cars or their own iPhone. But that's not the way that's not the system in China as it works today. In particular, this household registration policy means that they are expected to leave the city. Now your job is done. Go back to the city I and mean, go back, leave the city, go back to the countryside and reinvent yourself there. Wow. Become a small entrepreneur, you know, move into a service industry. And the problem is those opportunities in the countryside still are, you know, they're, they're lacking in number. And it's not clear that they necessarily, these migrants have the skills or their, or their cousins in the countryside to make this transition. Exactly. Um, I mean, one big issue is they have far, they, they, they've, they've, as a whole, received far, far inferior education to other people in the country, the people in the cities. So you mentioned something earlier as you were talking about what's going on there at the moment, and you said it's kind of returning to normalcy. It actually strikes me as interesting that I didn't realize Starbucks would be opening now. I mean, because, you know, take Wuhan, for example, everybody just sees it as the epicenter, which it, it was. Have they essentially slowed it to such a number as we're talking today that they're not wor as worried about transmission anymore? I would say that that is, that, is what, that is the situation now. They announced, I believe, yesterday that they, that they have reached their peak. The new transmission numbers, the most recent ones they announced, are astoundingly low, single digits. Now, we have always, you know, I was a business and economic journalist in, for years in China, so I learned a long time ago that you can't trust the numbers. However, it does appear, if we look at the broad trend lines, that indeed it is slowing very quick. The transmission is slowing very quickly in China. So um, that's, something, that's something worth noting. Uh, I divide the Chinese response, uh, rough, a real rough, rough picture, into an initial cover-up, which was devastating and very bad for China and for the world. And then this... Uh, all, all points on society government mobilization uh, with the, with the uh, quarantines, with the lockdowns, with the shutting down the economy, which was full of problems, no doubt about it, but it appears to have been relatively effective. And I think actually we're, we're not going to do what China did in terms of the lockdowns. We're, no. we're a different society, but we do need to move more. We, we need to be looking at them and and seeing what we can do that puts us a little closer towards dealing with this in a very, very serious manner. Right. Well, and that's the thing that's fascinating to me, right? It's like this idea that, you know, at first, obviously, China's response was not great. But then I read even to the level of they have drones out in the streets, like check it, telling people to go inside during quarantine. Is there what is that? Is there truth to that? Like, I can't imagine walking out of my house in a drone being like, what are you doing? Well, I saw, I did see some videos of drones. I don't know how widespread that was. It is, okay. it is a fact that they, uh, that the social, you know, social media messaging, everyone's on WeChat, which is a, 
you know, their, their version of, of, of chat in China and everyone's on that. They use it to buy everything now, you know, you can, uh, mobile payments. Uh, and so there was a massive push on that of education. A uh, friend of mine was telling me that, you know, walking in the park, there's, there's loudspeakers that are telling you, wash your hands, avoid, you know, stay two meters away from other people. So I, you, there were literally loudspeakers, public loudspeakers, uh, TV announcements, radio announcements, uh, so on and on and on. So uh, they, there was this uh, massive effort to try to educate the people. I mean, one of the interesting, so I, I, I do give them some credit for, without question for that. But one of the interesting counterpoints to that is to actually look across the Taiwan Strait at Taiwan, which so often gets ignored, including by the WHO, which treats them miserably for political reasons. Uh, it doesn't include them in its in its efforts to combat global disease. But Taiwan has an extremely admirable uh, record when it comes to containing the coronavirus. If I, I noticed say. that. Yeah. I saw that recently. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, it didn't involve, you know, authoritarianism or whatever you want to call it in China. So in, in Taiwan, they be, I mean, it was a combination of things, but they started by basically dusting off this global command center that had been put in place back with SARS in 2003. So Taiwan had had that experience and was hit badly then. And they knew they were vo very vulnerable today as well. I think about 400,000 Taiwanese business people live and work in the mainland. And Taiwan was well aware that as the news came out in China, the place they would all be heading is jumping on planes and heading back to Taiwan, which is what they did. So Taiwan put this global command center into place. They started to uh, track people through uh, their mobile phones. Uh, they took that data and they combined it with uh, immigration data as people came in. Uh, they did a good public education piece to it. And they kept infections and fatalities down to, you know, as good as or maybe better than any other place in the world. Given that you've seen, obviously you've seen what Taiwan did, you've seen what happened in China it just reminds me, just last night, I was talking to my brother about this, thinking, what happens when the world essentially shuts down at once? And on an even more kind of personal level, what happens when uh, the U.S. shuts down entirely? Like, I've never considered the, the, the time when everything stops. Everything, right? Sports, uh, schools. Um, you know, and I just can't imagine what happens. So given what you saw happen in China, what is your estimation of what's going to happen here, especially given our response has been, you know, in comparison to the global environment, very subpar? Yeah, I, I agree. It's been very subpar and, you know, sort of at the core or the most glaring example is the, the degree to which we've done testing, which is deeply alarming because it simply it means simply that we have no idea how bad it is here. It's, mm -hmm. We all know it's much worse than the numbers show, but we don't know how much worse. And we don't know how far we are behind in responding to it. Uh, I, so that's my, I mean, that's a, that's a huge concern. Um, I, you know, like you, I've never seen, <laughs> I've yeah. never seen the economy and society shut down in the United States and I don't expect it to do so with, uh, in such a in, in such a total way as it did in China, uh, but I do think that we need to very quickly uh, 
you know, reevaluate everything that we're doing and whether it's shutting schools, whether it's outright, you know, banning any sort of public gatherings. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but I do think we need to look at, at uh, some other examples around the world and move very quickly to change the way we do things. I also expect, unfortunately, the economic hit to the United States to be very bad, uh, just as we saw in China. And do you think we haven't seen that hit yet? I mean, of course, the economy is not the stock market. I'm well aware of that. I think many people are these days. Um, but it has been reflected in the stock market. Of course, we're going to see things like earnings come out and all of that. But do you think that as a as a society, we still or as a country, we still aren't aware of what this is going to do, um, economically speaking? Absolutely. I mean, people don't want to see the stock market fall with their 401ks and so on, and it has a direct impact. But but that we're not. It's not going to be something you watch on a screen or looking at your bank account. Right. Everything you know, everything is going to shut down. I mean, I think most things are going to shut down. I mean, all the restaurants, you know, all mm. sport, all sporting events. Uh, my home state of Montana, they announced yesterday or the day before. You know, all universities have been shut. Everything's going online. Um, uh, school productions. You know, <laughs> if they're yeah. you know, every everything. You know, Broadway, of course, is already shut down. Uh, so I, I don't think that, uh, no, I don't think that Americans have any sense of how dramatic this is going to be. I'm here in New York City. I'm going around. I, I'm actually wearing a mask. And, you know, mm -hmm. they, there's some debate about how effective they are. But one thing they all say is, you know, they're definitely effective from preventing others from, uh, you, know, you know, if someone passing it along to someone else and hopefully it protects the wearer as well. And right. no, nobody's wearing masks. And I find oh, yeah. it, I find it, uh, frankly, bizarre. I mean, I, I again, I lived through SARS in China, and you very quickly learn, you know, you learn social distancing, you learn that, you know, <laughs> you learn that you need to take precautions, the obvious things, washing your hands, not touching your face, don't touch door handles, all these things, you know, use your foot to open the door. Um, I'm just amazed at uh, how little this seems to have uh, been recognized by most people here in the United States at this point. I think they're going to figure it out very, very quickly, but yeah. it would be a lot better if they figured it out, you know, last week. Yeah. It's rare. I think that we are forced to face issues that we literally can't comprehend. And this has definitely been one of them. I mean, not to, not to simplify it, but I'm a big sports fan and I just noticed that the masters was postponed and it's like that has been going on every year in April since 1945. You know, I mean, that's, we're talking, you know, almost 80 years and that's just one area where, um, it's completely thrown off. And, and that was due to world war two before then. So point being the impacts and, and what it's going to have, I think are unknowable and everybody is, on the edge of their seats. I, I agree. Yeah, unknowable. And and by the way, everyone's affected. Uh, no one, right. no one is uh, immune or or uh, somehow separate from this. But absolutely, I, yes. Well, Dexter, um, I I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. You know, thank you for giving us a little bit of an insight to what's going on in China, the economic impacts, a lot of the things we just don't see and hear about um, all over the world, especially as it relates to the migrant workers and um, what's going on, and also with China being such a, a global hub. Um, the new book is The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, 
the worker, the factory, and the future of the world. I just wanted to give you a minute to, you know, maybe tell us a little bit more about the book directly and then uh, where you would guide our listeners. Either obviously go purchase it or just want to learn more about you and the work that you do. Yeah, well, the book, we've, we've had a good chance to talk about it. But, uh, you know, the basic, uh, the, I, I deal with several myths. And the big one is that the, glo- the, the growth out of China that has been so important to the multinationals of the world and, and, uh, and, and countries around the world, including the United States, uh, is not going to return after the virus. And, uh, and that's something that we all need to figure out uh, and, and start to plan for. And... Uh, the global supply chain, as we've already spoken about, is something that we're already seeing great shifts happening. Uh, so so uh, I do certainly encourage people to uh, buy my book and and uh, and and you, you can learn a lot more about these topics and more uh, if you do if you do if you do get it. Um, it's available in all you know all good bookstores and book sites from Amazon to Powell's and so on. and uh, so please do. And uh, I hope I hope I hope no one is has to go through quarantines. But if you do and you need some reading material, uh, think, consider the myth of Chinese capitalism. Uh, that is true. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm, act, I'm pretty active on Twitter. That's my um, and I'm there at D T I F F. And then my last name, Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S. And uh if you really wanted to look at me, um, I, I've got my website is www.dexterroberts.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, we will link to those. Dexter, again, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. That was our timely interview with Dexter Roberts. Dexter's book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and The Future of the World can be found wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to the podcast. If you could tell a friend, a family member, a coworker, whoever it may be, we would greatly appreciate it. And if you're looking for other easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you downloaded this episode and leave us a rating or review. And if you'd like to support us monetarily, you could always head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And of course, if you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right. Well, I hope you're not getting too stir crazy if you're locked in your house, if you're cooped up with your significant other or whoever it may be. Hope you find some time to learn some cool things, maybe start a new hobby, whatever it is to help pass the time. But make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up. And we will be back in just a couple of weeks. So we will see you all next episode. <music>